Welcome to ArchiSpeak, the podcast that talks about what it's like to work in the profession of architecture. All right, so the idea with this show came from the last episode when we did our, you know, our chat about the Netflix documentary on Olafur Eliasson. And in that episode, we we didn't speak about, he talked about Harpa, which is a, you know, Olafur has, has ventured into architecture, obviously he seems to be well-trained to do so. Yeah. And he walked us through some of the work that they did on Harpa, which is, uh, I, I don't know exactly the function of the building. I think it's kind of a conference it's center a slash hall. Uh, music yeah. hall. Yeah. And because I didn't, I, I went into it, but we didn't get to go into the main space. I think that's often yeah, the case yeah. when you go visit places like these. Like I've been to Sydney Opera House, and you, you just—it's under restoration, so you can't do it at that time. And and so there, there's just things like that, and you got to pay money to go on these tours, and which I'm not opposed to, but we just didn't have the opportunity to get into the main the main space. But we did get to walk through, obviously, the gift shop. That's always a, <laughs> it's always open. Yes, and uh, through the gift shop and. Yeah, enter and exit through the gift shop, and and then there's the like the main kind of pre-function area and and a couple of other really neat views of the harbor and stuff, and and you do really get to experience architecturally. One of the most interesting things about that building is the facade and how it is very structural and it is very much based on um, some geological areas in Iceland, right? Mm-hmm. Where he talked about that in the episode, and so it just made me think about how. During the time that we're in right now, where we can't go experience architecture, how fundamentally important that is to the development of architects. And most people don't experience capital A architecture very often. If they do, sometimes it's just through magazines or through the screen on the computer. And so we thought it would be fun to talk about actually experiencing capital A architecture and kind of nerding out on it, right? Like that should be something that this show is all about. I wanted to do a little bit more research because didn't he say it was the Oliver? Didn't he say that one of the inspirations for his idea was the, is it basaltic formations? Yeah. Yeah. And those look a lot like the Western coast of Ireland. Basically there's this huge formation that looks exactly the same as that, you know, and I'm always a Muslim geography nerd as well. And, you know, I always have been thinking a lot more of Pangea and you start to take a look at the map and you start to see where geographically things look like they fit together perfectly well or enough where you say, okay, well, you know, maybe through erosion and time, you know, what used to fit perfectly together now is just a slight variation thereof. But, you know, I'm curious if there's and this is just a complete side thought, but curious if there's like, you know, any relationship to like say Iceland and Ireland in the way that they connected based off of like this formation, um, you know, and where the, you know, maybe it doesn't necessarily occur like on East coast of Iceland and West, you know, West coast of Ireland to like really connect. But, you know, it's just, it, that was my side thought when, as I'm sitting there watching, I'm like, Hmm, that looks a lot like, yeah, yeah. you know, this and, <laughs> I I pointed at it and my kids were were there and I said what what does that look like and uh, they said oh Devil's Postpile which we had been to which is up in Mammoth in Central California kind of Eastern Sierras and very similar again formations uh, you know it's really geometric like that and and the idea is like that you know there's the the molten hot lava and and there's 
air coming up through it and water coming up through it and it's boiling and it like these columns of stuff trying to get out are densifying as it against each other and so they're pushing against each other kind of like a friction pile and that's what's causing these flat sides is because they're pushed there's so much pressure and they're pushing against each other that it creates these really interesting five six seven sided columns that then harden like that um, and what's cool about devil's post pile is then a glacier came through and smoothed the top off and so at the top you've got like these perfect geometric tiles it's like a dance floor yeah, yeah, yeah. on the top of this thing the way you approach it is you hike from the bottom up and you get to look at this wall of geometric uh, columns that are you know a lot of them have fallen off but they're still a lot you know in their vertical orientation and looks like a rock climbing kind of a dream and and then you get to the top and it's polished and it's such a contrast to what you see down below that it's really interesting. So, I mean, you know, bringing that back to architecture and kind of fusing an idea like that that you find in nature and kind of using this geologic or biophilic inspiration to create the facade of that building, yeah. I thought was really interesting. And what's cool about it in in Harpa is that it's it's glass and steel tubes and you can actually inha inhabit the space of the space frame, which is super cool. So big picture, this episode, I think for us is is more about maybe coming up with the significant list of buildings that we've been to in the in the past, you know, let's say up to three or four years, and then go through that list and come down with a short list. And then on the next episode, we will have picked one to talk about each that we think is like really significant, worth talking about. Yeah. Sound good? Yeah. All right, so my list, you know, as as we were as we were holding there before the episode started, I actually found a couple more things I wanted to add to it. So I think I'm up to Don't 32 or 33 on my list. <laughs> they're just so they're so good. <laughs> so I, I do get to travel some. So yeah, I, I'm not not complaining. Well, so here let's let's um let's talk about how our our list forms. You know, so yeah, some let's of. Do it. You know, some of mine are, you know, both obviously places that I've been and experienced, and then others are places that I have on my bucket list or my just wish list of places that I'd like to go um, that haven't gone that I've been to, you know, maybe a place or two from this particular architect. And I'm like, oh, you know, they also did this and I really would love to see that. But, you know, a lot of mine, you know, a lot of our travel is in the car with family and things like that. Mm -hmm. And as I kind of experienced, um, even yesterday when we were driving around, you know, trying to find a place that, you know, was, uh, not as, uh, crowded with now that everybody's slowly, but surely allowed to, you know, get out and at least, you know, hit the hiking trails and things like that. So we always drive past, you know, like these, these amazing early 1700, you know, mid 1700 type, buildings that are still existing or, you know, the there's foundations of, and I always like stop and my wife's like, ah, really again. And so a lot of times I have to drive past things because I always get that really we're stopping again. <laughs> um, so it always goes like on my list of like, oh, I really want to go back and, you know, take a look at that. And so that's more of where my list is. Where is yours? How often does that actually happen? Um, Do you actually get to go back? You know, surprisingly enough, in some of these cases, we do and um there are some some really uh i mean my wife like loves looking at architecture and stuff but you know a lot of times the the trip from you know the house to wherever we're going 
is usually a long trip and she doesn't want to sit in the, the truck for however long she needs to. And, um, yeah, and so yep. anytime or every time I pull the car off the side of the road, you know, the kids are, you know, say, ah, I get to stretch my legs, but also, you know, I get to check out this weird little thing that for some reason has captivated my dad. And so, you know, we, we get to do things like that, but she's just like, really? <laughs> well, my wife is, is trained as an architect and feels the same way. <laughs> <laughs> like, Dude, you're stopping again. Yeah. If we can find a place that's kind of a really great balance of, of architecture and nature, those are the best for both of us. Yeah. So we, we get the good architecture and nature. And then thankfully she's a history nerd. So um, if it's historical, then she's all for it. And so, you know, there are going to be some of those that on my list that are more like district oriented that are also historic oriented. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because I, I'm thinking through right now and the and the the two that kind of stand out to me that her and I had been to together that were really great. So I'll, I'll start my list off with these is um, most recently the the Portland Japanese Gardens, which I think that was Kengo Kuma, if I'm not mistaken. And um, I wasn't expecting it. So and I haven't gone back to do much research. But when we were in Portland, that was one of the places that was recommended to go to. And like a lot of times you know, we, we go somewhere and we don't we intentionally don't do a bunch of research ahead of time so that we can just go experience the place and kind of ask other people what what's worth seeing, you know. So when we were up there, we, we did like Multnomah Falls and we went down to the Big Pink and we did, you know, some hikes up in the castles and there's all kinds of neat stuff there. We had great weather. But the number one thing by far was the Portland Japanese Gardens. And again, having no idea what we were getting ourselves into, like we love visiting gardens. There's a few great gardens yeah. around us here and, and obviously, you know, Longwood Gardens that we've been uh, to in Pennsylvania. Yes. You and I have been there together. Um, it's just, it, we love that kind of stuff. And so the Portland one is amazing. It's up on this hillside. It's, it's, and then there's the visitor center building, which is, I, you know, from what I understand, relatively new, it looks like brand new. It's beautiful. And that was just one of those great places of balance for the both of us. And, and that was one that was definitely on my list. It definitely checks the box of capital A architecture, even though it's not trying to stand out. It's, it's a very understated, beautifully detailed design. Um, if you, what Cormac and I did for this episode is we both shared a, an, a photo album with each other. So if you look in there, um, you'll see a picture of a, of a steel roof. You can just see um, these giant plates of steel that are held off of each other by a couple inches each. And the roof is planted in kind of these natural gutters. And there's these little, you know, the plants are growing over the edge of the roof. And it's, it's just this gorgeous play of steel, glass, and wood in a beautiful setting. And then the gardens are just amazing. So the other one that we visited that is very similar, but, but not is in Sweden, we went to, I'm going to look, I'm going to say that, try to say the name properly here, Skogskirka garden. And that is a cemetery. It's called the woodland cemetery in Sweden. And you should definitely look it up because it was designed by two architects and one of those architects was Gunnar Asplund. And that's what I was looking up as we kind of were just getting ready to record because one, a friend of the show actually recommended that I go see this. And 
I had no idea that it existed. We were in Stockholm. We got on the train. We went up here, and and it's an enormous, like it's not just a tiny cemetery. And my wife and I actually do like to go walk around really old, cool cemeteries. We've we try to do it all over the place, but. Greta Garbo is is buried in this one, for instance, which is kind of weird. All, all of a sudden, you just stumble upon this ordained gravestone, and it's and it's Greta Garbo. <laughs> um, but this the the planning of the cemetery, the way the buildings are placed. There's several buildings on it, uh, and the, the idea of the kind of these these chapels that form some really interesting complexes. And the way that the the buildings don't touch each other was one of the things that was really kind of pointed out as is one of the the neat architectural moves and it's handled in different ways depending on which chapel you're looking at but amazing place balancing kind of architecture and nature um, and in this case a cemetery but it's acres and acres and acres and you just go walk you walk the woods it really is a woodland cemetery it's it's pretty amazing so that's that's another one on probably worth um, putting on the short list of ones worth talking about in the future so what about you well, um, start us off with a start us off with a couple ideas here. So there is one, and this is on the need to see list, and the reason why it's need to see, and it's a local um, one, but unfortunately didn't get a chance to see it because it opened up recently in September of last year, and because the events were sold out so quickly, and in you know, with security and everything else, um, you know, it just, it, it became too, in a way it became a little too cumbersome to actually try to get out there. And that is the reach center at, uh, the Kennedy center. And it is a, a new, new construction. And I'm trying to, um, I believe it was Stephen Hull who did it, but it's these beautiful little pavilions that, you know, create this nice little landscape that in otherwise like a very urban context you don't actually have like these very framed views of the space and so they're these just beautifully thin curving walls um and i don't know if you've seen any images of the of the reach center i I probably have i think i have yeah but but it's it's just it's this it's basically it's a massive green roof with the you know with the the top of all of these um uh, little pavilions kind of popping out of it and then define helping define the space of this big green roof and it and it's pretty amazing space and you know and, and unfortunately just at like i said at the time it opened i mean i don't know if they they realized this but i couldn't go because i've got a deadline man <laughs> and so <laughs> how come they didn't confirm they didn't, with you first <laughs> confirm that you know i was but i i guess what it is is that it's this interesting like evolution of modern architecture within dc that you know you've got like this very mid-century modern kennedy center it caps a road that's immediately underneath it that you know as you're driving in from my neck of the woods um you know like georgetown and you know the the maryland suburbs um right over the dc border and as you kind of come into it it helps frame this view of DC, where as you like go underneath the road and you're going underneath the Kennedy center, then kind of like the whole monuments start to open up and all this other stuff. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's this beautiful picture, you know, like just the old Kennedy center was great in doing that. But then, you know, now you see these like, you know, beautiful, like very delicate buildings kind of pop up and there, you know, there's nothing super articulated about them. Mostly just these beautifully stone clad 
delicate kind of sweeps, but it's, it's a, it's a beautiful building. And it, unfortunately, you know, that's one of those ones that's in the, I need to see list, but since mm-hmm. it's really local to me, I'll be able to like, you know, come back maybe next episode or episode later and kind of report on, you know, what I've seen there and, and how, you know, what the experience is obviously aren't going to be going back, you know, going into the building for quite some time. Cause you and I were talking, you know, earlier, it's like, you know, when you start clicking on doing a little bit of research on some of these buildings that we've been to almost every one of them say temporarily closed, which is the next one that I have on my list, which is one that I have been to in, I think people might be getting a little like tired of me saying it over and over and over again, um, as an example of a building that they need to see, but it's another local building to me. And it's the, uh, Glenstone museum. Another one that is very reliant on the landscape and, you know, it helps basically it's the whole museum experience is a series of dotting this, this, you know, nice landscape in Potomac, Maryland, 12 minutes away from my house. And, you know, we go there often, but it's another just absolutely beautiful one by, you know, Thomas Pfeiffer. And, and that's another one where, you know, you, when you experience, you know, this particular building, you see the work that Thomas Pfeiffer did, you start to think about, Oh, I want to, you know, start to go see some other ones. And especially when we were looking at the, uh, Olafur, uh, thing, you just, you start to see these buildings that, you know, just these like very native to the place buildings, you know, for Iceland or Denmark or wherever that, you know, he's been just a part of, you know, he's, he's obviously not the architect of it, but he's at least been a part of it. And you just look at me like, ah, you know, and, you know, I think, I think what's interesting about those and probably like 90% of our list is, is the contextual element of it. It's interesting that the four buildings that we started with are not, they're, they're more like a complex than a, than a building. And they're more like, breaking down the scale of a larger scope of area. I mean, especially the reach that you're talking about at, at the Kennedy center is it's completely different than the Ken, the old Kennedy center, right? Which yeah, is one yeah. giant mid-century it's modern building, big building. <laughs> and, and kind of like Glenstone, the reach very similarly uh, frames a bunch of interesting views and really plays with the landscape. And, and to me, like this kind of really experiential landscape, it's not on my list because I haven't been there in a long time, but like the Getty center out here Uh, is, is like that too, where it's this giant complex of broken down components that you start to weave between and up and down. And even the old Getty out here is, is very similar to that, which is, has a beautiful new addition to it. Um, new is is in air quotes it's probably probably 10 years old but is architecturally that's i guess that's new but it's it's interesting to kind of think about how these really successful projects that we've experienced are bigger than themselves right they they yeah. reach out into the landscape they successfully weave the landscape in and it talks to me about how important that is as an element of capital a architecture when it's about the entire experience from arrival to departure. It's not just about once you walk through the door necessarily. So that that's kind of an interesting little little take on that. So what's funny is like actually one of my other entries on the list is is not a specific piece of architecture, but it's a collection of buildings and landscape that form the place. 
and you know it's Cranbrook mm. and Cranbrook itself yeah it's it's you know an art institute and it's a beautiful place of you know like very very creative places but because of the way that they put the buildings together and the way that they created like these little small spaces and these very large open spaces that you know you kind of it, it almost caters to almost every kind of personality type it's the introvert it's the extrovert it's like the social person it's the solitary person it's it's um different ways of thinking about how you create and like the way that they arrange these buildings and arrange these little small courtyards and these interlapping um you know or interconnecting overlapping or interlapping now (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, um, you know like different intersections of the corridors and the passages and and just like these interesting little found spaces that you know the the I'm going to use it now interlapping of all of these different spaces <laughs> has now, you know, created, it's just, I mean, because, you know, you've got some really beautiful mid-century modern buildings. You've got some really beautiful art nouveau type buildings. You know, you've got like a, an interesting canvas of different like Saarinen type from mid career to early career from the son and then, you know, late career of the father. And, you know, so you've got the opportunity for all of those different ones. And it's just the way that the buildings are, have been pulled together. You know, it isn't just one specific building on this campus. It is the whole campus and how it reacts to each building. And so that to me is one of the things that makes it more successful. What's interesting about it is in context you're driving around just a suburban neighborhood in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. And it's a nice neighborhood. And, but in, and you see like this tree lined streets and on one side, it's, you know, these houses. And on the other side, it's a, a beautifully articulated brick fence. And the brick fence is the walls of the school. And, you know, it, it blends beautifully into the neighborhood but, you know, then once you get past the gates into the campus, it's just this completely different oasis that obviously transports you from suburbia on one side of the fence to this just beautifully interlocking campus of buildings and landscape and, you know, how each of the interweaving of those spaces create something really special in each of those spaces every time we visit family in Michigan and specifically when I go and, you know, visit my, my father, it's on the way from where we usually stay with family to go up and visit him. And then as we're coming home, we, you know, have that opportunity to just basically stop. And and usually it's a, a thing that just my daughter and I do is we just stop there, probably grab like a hot chocolate and, you know, just walk the, walk the campus. And it's just an amazing little place. I would love to go there. I've seen so many great things about it, but I've never actually stepped foot in Michigan. So that would be a, that would definitely be on my bucket list of places. The interesting thing about Michigan, it's not one specific place, um, like one specific building. Cause there's a lot of like really, really nice mid-century modern buildings. And even now, you know, more contemporary buildings now that there's a lot of, you know, like in the more recent years, some of, you know, the economy starting to strengthen up and, and, you know, they're starting to, you know, really build some really nice work there. I'm really eager to watch the progress of the building that shop is doing in 
uh, downtown um, Detroit, which is the replacement for the old Hudson building where my parents subsequently had, they met each other. Mm. Um, work, they were both working there. My can't really remember where my mother was. I think she was working in the, uh, the restaurant. My father was working at the camera counter. So I'm very interested in what the replacement building is going to be. And so, you know, that, that's one that I'm going to, you know, continue to track and put on a, a later list. But there's just these, you know, like uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Midland, Michigan, which unfortunately has been in the news because of the failure of the dam um, that flooded this beautiful mid-century modern town that has just got all these amazing gems of buildings. Uh, there's um, this, oh God, I blanked on his name, but it was a, one of the students and disciples of Frank Lloyd Wright had moved there and had started building and so, you know, you see these very Wrightian type uh, buildings all over the place. And it's just this absolutely gorgeous place. I probably need to do a much better job of trying to, like, find the one specific buildings in there. I mean, you know, Minoru Yamasaki, he practiced out of Detroit. And so, you know, the uh, architect of the original, for those who you aren't familiar with, the architect of the original Twin Towers practiced out of Detroit and the interesting fenestration of the twin towers and kind of these really long vertical windows that kind of pinched at varying locations and stuff and kind of pinched in to kind of form a, you know, a, a, a point that was something that if you drive around Detroit in the suburbs of Detroit, you will see Yamasaki buildings all over the place that, have that very, very Yamasaki language that, you know, my wife even told me, and she showed it to me before it got demoed. It was called the Quavadis, but it was this very quirky looking uh, movie theater that he had designed. And sure enough, if you look at it, you're like, that looks like the same fenestration as the Twin Towers. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> like a tuning fork. Exactly. You know, yeah. he kept testing it over and over and over again. Right. And then somebody gave him the opportunity to build it on a really big scale and sure enough he did okay so i'm gonna go away from the let's call this the not architecture category but still kind of <laughs> worthy of the list uh so i have a couple of of ones that i've been to recently that i think are just worth consideration but aren't necessarily going to make it to the final so the first one is recent trip last year to new york got to experience the vessel so i would say that that uh. That probably falls that's into this vessel. category, right? It's it's kind of architecture, question mark, kind of not, right? It's not indoors, it's outdoors, and it's it's a a, a billion billionaires playground over there. So you know, <laughs> there's there's other there's other considerations, probably discussions worth having about that kind of you know social responsibility and things like of that nature. Um, but I think also kind of firmly on that list would be. Uh, I went to the Sundial Bridge by Calatrava up in uh, Northern California. And it was one of those things where you drag the family out there and then and then it's like, wow, this is pretty cool. It actually encourages interaction with the bridge and it's it's gorgeous. Um it's absolutely gorgeous. And and again, not architecture, but architectural for sure. Well it's interesting because a lot of times with both of those, you know, they were done by architects, right? Yeah, I don't know. Heatherwick is probably not licensed, but <laughs> well, not licensed. I mean, but worked with architect. Yeah, for sure. Well, 
I mean, you know, his name is all over the place and yes. multiple buildings and stuff yeah. like that. And, you know, and then Kyle Frank Lloyd Wright wasn't, wasn't licensed either. So, well, yeah, but you know, it's interesting because, you know, they, they're habitable. They yep. embody a lot of like the purpose and mission of architecture and you know, they aren't really necessarily performing shelter or providing shelter, but they are performing a experiential thing. And so, you know, is, is everything you talked about cemeteries and stuff and, and there are some very architectural cemeteries out there. Yeah, um, absolutely. Scarpa. Yeah, exactly. You know, and so are they necessarily, and this is a question for everybody and they're probably sitting there, you know, yelling, um, one opinion or another right now, but does architecture have to be shelter, you know, like yeah. pure, like no. enclosed yes. four walls in a roof? And I'm I'm firmly on the side of it does not because I and I honestly believe that architects should be involved in a lot more of just the built environment in general, right? How yeah, many yeah. freeway underpasses and overpasses and how many parks and how should have been designed by architects? There's there's so much opportunity out there that we kind of we've just given up on or haven't been included or you know there's there's a myriad of reasons, but it's. I I totally agree with what you're saying, and and that's why they're on my list is because they they give that sense of place, or they have the opportunity to give that sense of place, and they're not enclosure, right? Yeah. Right. So I'll add one more to the list, which was one of the more recent ones, and and I think you and and your son went there too, separate from me, but Hoover Dam was uh, uh, very yes. architectural, but definitely oh, yeah. not architecture right capital a architecture but what an experience what an amazing thing that was was created and and you know that was it was great to go on the tour and and get in there and actually experience it and and hear about all the thought that went into it and the things that they've done since 1930s to make it more of an experience for people and to really talk about kind of the engineering marvel that it is, but then some of the bigger ideas about it and, and how it was done, I think are, are definitely make it listable in this episode. Well, you know, you, you actually bring up an interesting one when you talk about the Hoover Dam and it, and I know that Hoover Dam isn't necessarily one, but the national park service has got, Oh my gosh. Yep. Absolutely beautiful collection of some of the most amazing buildings that yep. I have yep. ever seen, you know, yep. you know, one of them that I always lament the loss of, but, mm, but I know always say. <laughs> the Neutra building, the Neutra building at Gettysburg, I mean, yep. was the cyclorama and, mm-hmm. and, and I understand, you know, they're in the reason why they removed the building because they wanted to restore the actual battlefield to, you know, the pristine condition of, you know, what it was on the day that it, you know, the battle happened. However, that building captured absolutely a view of the battlefield that just standing on the grass and looking one way or the other, you couldn't really see the full breadth of this battlefield. But then you go to the observation deck of the cyclorama and you are perched overhead at the ridge line, you know, where you could oversee Pickett's charge and you could see you know you have this visual connection between where the unions armies were and the confederate armies were and you can see this whole thing and fully understand like the magnitude of the space that yeah you sort of get it 
a little bit when you're standing like, you know, at like the tree lines and things like that, where the Union soldiers were, but you don't really get to see the full interconnectedness of everything by just kind of standing in this one part. And then, but this building created such a unique perspective that it was, a lot of people hated it because it was a very modern building. Obviously it was Neutra. And so, unfortunately, they built a new cyclorama. They moved everything over to the new building, which is a very rustic kind of building, more kind of in keeping with, like, the the farms and the farmhouses and all that other stuff in the area. And this Neutra building was very much different from everything else. But it was just, it kind of served this purpose. And, you know, you think about, like, the building, you know, and, and I could literally litter half of my list with, buildings from the national parks, you know, and, and just the, yep. the, the, the way that they create and capture these views that you would otherwise never get because, well, one, the building is in the way, um, <laughs> but you know, two, it's just, you know, they, they went out of their way to kind of like, you know, build these things, the beautiful buildings in Grand Tetons and, you know, there's just all these different national park ones. I mean, that right there alone would be, you know, an interesting one to talk about because of oh, like, yeah it's interconnectedness to like the CCC and, you know, like this whole kind of like, let's let everybody see America kind of thing and create in the creation of the, uh, I think somebody calls it like the parkitecture. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's so many good ones. I mean, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, ones that I've been to in the last few years. There's an amazingly beautiful small visitor center at the south side of Canyonlands National Park. It's called uh, the Needles yes. Visitor, Center, yes. Visitor Center. There's yeah. the Awani Hotel in Yosemite. There's the Bowen Chawinski Jackson Visitor Center at the Grand Tetons. Yes. There's the Old Faithful Lodge in Yellowstone. Like, there's so uh, many well, that, great the, examples. That big lodge is the one I'm thinking of. Yeah, it's so amazing. Yes. Yeah, you're right. That is like that. That might be a, another episode worth right there. Just, just so much good stuff there. And again, I think like park visitors kind of take it for granted. But when when an architect walks into these and you start staring at the details of, of you know, in some cases, it's like the grand scale of the Awani and the stone and the timber or the mm -hmm. Old Faithful Lodge. And then sometimes it's the incredible detailing of like the Needles Visitor Center or the the stainless steel strips embedded in the concrete at, at the the Grand Tetons Visitor Center. So it's just things, there's there's so many different things to think about and look at when you get to these. And it is amazing to see the Park Service kind of invest in these amazing architectural experiences to go along with the amazing na natural experiences that people are having there. That's really cool. So there was one, one more here um, that I thought is kind of bridging the gap between object and and experience which was the st louis arch mm. which yes. is just it's an amazing experience and and i went a couple of years ago you know after the new visitor center had opened and the 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 kind of subterranean um you know you go you push down you go through this really fantastic circular opening that you kind of depresses down into the ground and it takes you through this really great procession about um you know expansion to the west and you know the whole idea behind the the competition for the arch and and it becoming this gateway to the west and you go through this historical lesson until you get to right before you go up into the arch and you get to see like the actual outcome of the design competition you get to see the models that were built by Saarinen's office 
and then to go up in that rickety ass old elevator. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. super cool experience, uh, kind of claustrophobic for a lot of people. Um, and then you go up to the top and you just get this amazing view at these tiny little windows. Uh, and, and again, like worthy of consideration for the list because what an experience and what a, what a monument to what architecture and structural engineering can be. And then with the addition of this whole underground kind of procession to get there, I think is really successful. Um, and some of my favorite photographs that I've taken in the last few years came out of this place. So it, it's definitely worthy of the list. Which is funny because it's on my list as well. Nice. But I even expanded it a little bit. You know, when the um, interstate came through and cut through, it basically cut a big, huge scar through downtown mm -hmm. where downtown was never connected to the arch. And so it was really hard for people to get to the arch. So a lot of times the arch sort of fell in disrepair. Just got skipped. It just got skipped. I mean, it was just, it was, it was more of a challenge to get there and be a part of downtown because there's a lot of really cool uh, buildings in downtown. There's this beautiful, you know, Sullivan building, you know, within walking distance of the arch. But if you were standing at the Sullivan building, you couldn't walk directly to the arch from there, but now you can, you know, that, that whole effort, that whole process, that project was probably one of the best things that, um, St. Louis has done. Now they could absolutely pull up that nasty carpet in at the top of the arch. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, because it smells musty and crappy up there, um, they could have at least done that, but you know, maybe it was, you know, it's a phased, it's a phased re restoration. <laughs> I sure hope so because you, know, you 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 go through and and I I love kind of like you know as as you're talking about when you're walking down into the arch you know you almost have this like engraved cutout of the arch that's bowing towards the arch mm -hmm. rather than bowing away from the arch like a you know like you would in, with a shadow line or something like that and so right. it was it was kind of interesting that that kind of helped create you know it, it almost creates like a circle from you know a a nice little viewpoint far enough away from the arch where you can see the um the entry into the building and you can kind of see the buildings car carved in there and the great thing about it is is that the way that the building both the museum of westward expansion and the revitalized one they're like so delicately placed there that you really don't see them and the further and further you get away from all you really see is just the arch and how it makes connection to the ground. Um, yeah. And you don't really see all of these other buildings blocking the way in right. the view. But when you get there, you realize that this is a pretty massive undertaking yes. to create that building underneath the arch. And then I always think about how the judging process went when people are like, oh, this I've seen this type of a monument before. This is a very interesting you know, it's, it's very conventional. I can see how that could be constructed. And then they go down the list and they go down the list and they see all of these and they're very like conventional things. And then they get and they're like, what the, how, how, how can you do that? And then they were like, yeah, let's do that one. You know, yeah, this, this, right. you know, because that, I, I do, it's I a totally, triumph. I mean, it's, it's oh. one of those things where it's like, how could anyone be possessed to actually pick that one as a winner? And it's obvious. Uh, it's kind of like what we talked about in the last episode where, you were talking about Bjarke Ingels projects where, where you have this giant absurd idea that would actually work, but you had to have a studio and the freedom to come up with ideas like that. Yeah. 
to then later deem them as the obvious choice. And it is the obvious choice. Like thinking about it as a gateway and looking toward the future, I mean, this embodies that in so many different ways. It's it's also interesting to me, you know, you talked about the entry and and the way that it's oriented. Obviously, it's oriented as a collector from St. Lu- from downtown, right, which right. is really important based on the the stuff that you said right before that about connecting back to this like reconnecting with the city. That's huge. And and it really did kind of remind me of Maya Lin's Vietnam Memorial, right, where it's like this this cut in the earth and it's so subtle yet so powerful yeah. like just the yeah. the entry to this and what if i do have one kind of regret was that not knowing that this was this it's funny this actually is a national park right yeah. i didn't bring my park pass so i had to pay to get in <laughs> <laughs> but but it's, it's it's that important it's it's achieved that status and it's interesting to me that the the national park actually runs that entire museum and and everything well the only thing that you do have to pay for um a national park pass or not you do have to pay for the actual like trip up into yeah. the arch. Right. But which is optional. You don't have to do that. Yeah, but you can yeah, like like I went in and, you know, I had my national parks pass and I also was behind a family who just paid like fifty, sixty bucks to to get in and do all the other stuff. And for me it was like eight bucks to go up to the top and do all of the other things and stuff. So I mean it wasn't bad. Um I mean hell it was great. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So what what else is on your list? Well, one that I just recently visited in just at the very, very beginning of coronavirus cases popping up in New York. I happen to be in New York and there's a handful of like these buildings um, on my list in New York City. But one particularly was the New York Times building. And the thing that I just find most amazing about all of that is here you have this enormous skyscraper, but every single detail was thought of mm-hmm. and exposed and, you know, put on display. And you see this, you know, this beautiful cross bracing, you know, of the, you have this ex- exposed structural steel system and, you know, then everything's kind of like interlaid with all of this stuff. And then you've got these beautiful cross braces that are just, you know, on turnbuckles and the way that they did, you know, turn the turnbuckle for one cross bracing to kind of go through the other one. But then you step back and you look at through the window, you see the stairs and the stairs are at the perfect angle of all of the cross bracing. And, you know, it's just that layering effect of just, Oh, and then they thought of this. Oh, and then they thought of this. And so there's not like one thing that seems to be out of place other than once you probably get into, you know, somebody coming in and doing like a tenant fit out that isn't really in keeping with what the overall, you know, scheme of the building is. But for the the few places that I had visited and I visited, God, it seems like a decade ago, really, right when it opened up, um, Lutron was actually doing a, um, oh, a tour. Yeah, yeah. They were doing a yeah. tour of it you know, for, you know, their, their lighting and sun shading and all of that other stuff. And I, I was lucky enough to go on that tour and they, because of where I was at, I got to take the train up and meet up with the group and you know, they paid for like a big, you know, huge multi-course, um, you know, Italian dinner and all this other stuff and paid for my train back, which was just fantastic. That's one of the things that I remember most about it <laughs> is this delightful <laughs> dinner. But I mean, like, 
Treat yourself. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but all of the details are just so well thought out. Now, that's one that's like teetering on a contextual problem only because the buildings that surround it are of equal scale and and some are of like, you know, are, you know, are nice buildings or nicer buildings. And then some are like, oh, God, it's just mm-hmm. like, but because of that, I think it also helps kind of like let that building stand apart on its own as like on this block, there ain't anything better than that building. I mean, it's just such a beautifully articulated, just every little detail was thought through on that thing. And, and so, you know, you have got to applaud Mr. Piano in his uh, studio because it is just gorgeously thought through. Yeah. I've just walked by the base of it. I did have the opportunity to take a tour, but I was, um, incapacitated hungover um and i couldn't actually do anything it was it was one of those lutron trips so so let's keep it in new york do you have anything else on your list from new york so there are two buildings in new york that i've visited one both of them i have high marks for the concept one of them as we've talked about in the past i it kind of like falls apart but I have, I feel like they're interconnected in a way, even though they're on like two separate sides of Manhattan Island or one's in the middle and one's at, you know, near in the end. And it is the crap. Is it called the Oculus? Have I completely yeah. forgotten yep. it? Uh, yep. Yeah. The Oculus in the, the Westfield mall. Yeah. Right. The Westfield mall <laughs> that let's be clear. That's the one that I <laughs> am not the biggest fan of. And the uh Guggenheim Museum. And the reason I pulled those two together and, and you've you've seen that I've I've sent you these pictures before. When you walk into the Guggenheim Museum, there's this in floor medallion right as you walk through the vestibule of the Guggenheim. Where mm-hmm. I swear to you, the designer of the Westfield Mall, aka the <laughs> Oculus must have walked in there and said, hmm, it's an interesting concept. I like that. Because the 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 symbol in the medallion looks damn near exactly like the final product of the Oculus. And I like I the mean, elevation of it, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean I love I love the concept of both of them. It's just that one is another one to me Going back to the New York Times building, to me, that one suffers from context because it seems so awkwardly placed and it almost feels shoehorned and jammed into things. And then you look deeper and deeper with a project manager's eye of like finishing of just all of the little things. Whereas you look at the New York Times building and when I, when I went through it, I went through and I was with a couple of uh, guys on my project team and we were all looking at it both in awe, but we were also looking at it, you know, is detailing in how do they detail this and how do they detail that? And I would say 99% of that building met the, you know, the, the sniff test of like everything was beautifully detailed and thought through. There was a few things where like floors were coming together in a very awkward condition that, you know, you're like, well, if you would have just done this, it you know would be perfect, and of course that's just happens when every single building that everybody ever goes to is that architects can never find a perfect building because they always find some flaw somewhere. 
Yeah, I was gonna. Uh, I was gonna say I, I pulled up a picture of the the Guggenheim medallion that you're talking about. <laughs> put it in the show notes, and and just so everybody knows, everything that we're talking about, we'll have links to it in the show notes, so that you don't have to go search for it yourself. You can just click for a link. Yeah. But you are. It it is exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's it's close. Am I right? <laughs> it, am I right or am I right? <laughs> Well, the Guggenheim was on my list, too. Uh, I think some of the favorite photos that I've taken that are architectural in the last few years mm, yes. came out of that building. And it was it was an amazing experience. And I definitely spent quite a bit of time there um, with you know, a friend of the show, Brett Levitt, as well. And we took a lot of photos. Um, it, but it was one of those days where the lighting was just perfect. And it's probably hard to find a day when it's not. The way that the building is designed is to get the lighting in there the way that it does and going up to the top and then spiraling your way down and then ending up in the restaurant and looking at all the details and the way the columns touch the floor and the way that the sculpted lenses of windows in different places around the restaurant and the entry are are kind of, you know, it was definitely the circle template phase of Frank Lloyd Wright, right? But it was... But it was nice. it, it it is an amazing experience and and I got some amazing photos and it was one of those places that really is capital A architecture to me so I think this one is definitely worthy of of being on the short list of of ones that we might talk about in the next episode and, and do a deeper dive we'll see yeah well you know I believe that particular trip that you're talking about if you guys would have held off one more day. I could have joined you on that trip, but for some reason, y'all just wanted to go ahead and start having your architectural tour fun without me and couldn't wait. (laughs) This was like my third trip to New York, and every other time I'd been to New York, the Guggenheim was covered with scaffolding because they were repairing the plaster. And it's like, I've been waiting for two decades to get into this building. Cormac, I was not going to wait one more day. (laughs) I appreciate that. (laughs) all right so anything else in new york i got one if you don't i mean go for it this goes back to kind of what we we started off by talking about um you'll see why here in a second Uh, any guesses with that little hint um right i'll spare you it's the high line i was gonna i was gonna i was gonna ask if it was the high line but we've been there together (laughs) right but you know it's one of those ones that she's like well you could say the high line because there is, I mean, there was so much that was done to it. Obviously, as everybody knows, it was a, you know, elevated train tracks that were abandoned and, and repurposed. But I think the thing about that, the power of that one is how it interweaves. And I'm going to let you keep talking before I ramble on about it. But it's that interweaving and cl- connecting so many other beautiful buildings. So it's not just one thing about that high line that, I mean, because it connects, you know, I mean, you, we, we walked the whole thing, you know, we started mm-hmm. from the convention center all the way to the very end of it, where when you go down the stairs at the very end, doesn't it, uh, there's like a little installation that when you look up, it says, you yeah. know, um, give your daughters strange names or something like that. Interesting names, yeah. I think. Yeah. Something like that. And, uh, I was like, of course I, I did. Um, <laughs> But anyway, it was just, it's, it's this beautiful interweaving of this landscape intervention, built landscape intervention with all of these beautiful architectural inner, you know, all these architectural buildings that it interweaves between and how they respond to it as well. 
Yeah, this is one of those things where it, this is my favorite kind of architecture, and I don't know that you can really categorize it, but there's you'll, you know it when you see it, which is it's it's a repurposing of the old with new yes. ideas, kind of interwoven into it. And you know, I love going into old buildings that have heavy timber and big steel connections, and they're very industrial in that way, and they're very pure and raw. There's there's lots of buildings in Portland like that. There's lots of buildings in 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 old cities that are that are like that. Um, like in in Denver, where the the REI headquarters is 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 an old I think it's an old coal mining plant that they've turned into this giant REI, and it's just it's an amazing amazingly cool thing because they've taken something that was like a very hard set of constraints and turned it into a complete transformation. Like that's what the High Line is. It's a complete transformation. It, it, and and they did it at a time in the city when it was a blight, yeah. right? It yeah. was it was terrible. And they've turned it into the most activating thing that could possibly have happened to that side of Manhattan. Well, yeah. And it's so successful in that way, the way it goes from the Whitney and it becomes this experience all the way to Hudson Yards. Right, right. That's what's amazing to me about it is and and the the wide ranging experiences that you can have along the way that that are, you know, there's sitting, there's standing, there's grass, there's gardens, there's amphitheaters, there's lounge chairs, the way that they've interwoven the tracks and kind of the the railroad language into the the design of the hardscape yeah. and the softscape yeah. and, and and like there's just so many things there's so many things to look at every time you go you will find something different to look at and the way that that they've planted it and you know they've undulated the walking surface uh, taken advantage of of a lot of different really weird constraints right and turn those into opportunities yeah i think that's one of the most successful things about it and again it's like it's not architecture per se it links a bunch of architecture but it really is kind of this architectural monument that runs through the city that was originally designed by train engineers, you know, right? And and now it's this experience. And I think, that, again, like that's what takes this back to really being successful capital A architecture is experience, like the way that it ties these things together and creates an experience for people. And what's so great about it is you see people who are tourists who go walk the whole thing. You see athletes who are jogging and running the whole thing you see people who are just sitting playing having a picnic lunch you see people who come out of the buildings at lunch and just use it and then go back out there's so many different uses that are happening at the same time um, it really does seem to activate it in, in a way that nothing else could you know it, it's also like a time clock too because you know you're, you're talking about how people come out and you know use it at various times of the day and stuff and i remember that, you know, when we started, we kind of, you know, started midday, you know, this was a, a family trip that I took. And as we were getting closer and closer to sunset, you know, we were aligning ourselves with, you know, these, these roads that you could get this beautiful shot of like the sunset kind of cutting through this very glassy, you know, corridor, illuminating all of the buildings that framed out this view but you're sitting there just staring at this like beautiful little like sunset view that because of the perspective you're given from the high line, you completely see it in a completely different way than you would if you were like standing on the ground or you're up, you might not get the same perspective, but you know, this like lit corridor of like just golden light that's coming through that, 
you know, you're only really seeing from that perspective in, you know, the high line. You walk a little bit further up the high line, you don't get that view. You walk a little bit further down that high line, you don't get that view. And there are some where there were very conscious decisions of the framing view. And then there's some that were just like these accidental finds that it's like, oh, you know, in maybe you, you know, like, cause there are some like there's planting along, you know, one of the ones that we found to be the most intriguing view that they didn't really think about that as being a view until after like some of these other buildings had infilled. And now they're like, you know, I mean, hopefully maybe they come later on and, you know, how they've built off like these little, like almost like amphitheater, like mm-hmm. pull offs that they had, you know, with, you know, like stack seating and everything yeah. else. They, you know, I mean, hopefully they come and like add some of those. Cause I mean, they're just, you know, some of these great little opportunities and, you know, absolutely love that. Yeah. I can imagine, or I can't imagine because it's gotta be so much work. The oh, investigation yeah, yeah. that had to happen for this. And, you know, I know they've written books about this and they've published all kinds of interesting things about it, but the, the amount of, yeah, I, I wonder how much of it was like kind of serendipitous versus, versus discovered and planned for. Um, I'm sure it's a good mix of both. And it is interesting the way that, you know, it gets people off the street and it gets them up into different vantage yeah. point than they get of the city. And it is so attractive. It, that's what's really interesting to me about it. And it's not, it's not architecture, right? Because it's not, people aren't going into space, but it is very architectural. And I, I don't think that it, it kind of has to be on this list. You know, back to what we were talking about on these, you know, spaces that are occupied, but not like, you know, enclosed spaces being architecture. I mean, because mm-hmm. each of these, I mean, it is so varying as you walk through the high line of all of these different outdoor rooms that are created by the way that it like meanders underneath a building or around a building or in between buildings and things like that, that, you know, these are, these are well thought out, whether it's landscape architecture or capital A architecture, I feel it's very much architecture. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty much my New York list. I, I would, I'd jump back to the West here and, and say one of the ones worth worthy of consideration is that I've been to a couple times in the last few years is Taliesin West. Mm, Yes. So kind of getting back to the complex, um, and the way that Wright interwove, you know, buildings and nature, um, in a, in a very, you know, at the time desolate, right. Uh, and obviously Taliesin West has been in the news in the last six months, uh, mm, yeah. you know, closing down the architecture school and then maybe not. And, you know, there's all kinds of weird political stuff going on there, but I've done the tour two times. I've been there three or four times. Uh, and it is, it's a, it's one of those places where the last time was the first time I've ever taken my kids there. And, and for them to see it and experience it was really fun and and really cool because it's not like anything else. It's it's so different, and yet you know the kids are like, "This was in the '60s," or you know, like what? <laughs> it looks so it because they they do do a pretty good job of keeping it up, and the way that the way they use the materials um, in a obviously half the building is, is rock and concrete and it's not going anywhere, but they do keep it in, in pretty nice shape. And there's a lot of tour money flowing through there, I'm sure. But it's one of those places where it just was way ahead of its time as far as how it looks, how it works. Um, I haven't been there in the worst times of the year, you know, Phoenix right, or Scottsdale right. when it's 125 every day of the week. I, I don't know what it's like, 
but it's it's such an interesting complex in the way that it was kind of done over time and and to hear the stories about Wright. And it's interesting to hear the docents talk about the genius of Frank Lloyd Wright. And, and you know, we've all been through architecture school, the, the royal we. And <laughs> and it's it's like, oh, yeah, that was slave labor. Right. For oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. So so definitely definite uh, other conversations to be had around around this kind of thing as well but the vision of that place carried out is is pretty impactful so interesting um i have on my list a right complex as well and that is florida southern college in lakeland florida which is the only right complex of buildings and it's this small um college in lakeland florida that you know, it's just a, it, it kind of goes off to, you know, a very similar nature as, um, in this was later in his career and not all of the buildings were finished, you know, during his lifetime. And f- for somebody who's, who did not grow up in Florida, you know, although bad choice of construction material, because, you know, in his concrete, he used, you know, essentially local beach sand, which is high in salt content. And over time, didn't quite understand the the degradation of, you know, the beach sand within the overall concrete composition. And I'm not saying that I know anybody who might have accidentally kicked through a wall, oh. <laughs> but it might have happened. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, again, I don't know who that person is and I wouldn't, it won't stand up in a court of law, um, but... The the thing that I found amazing about Wright's ability now, I mean, you know, most of the time, a lot of like architects, American architects and stuff, they roll their eyes when they hear Wright, you know, some mm-hmm. people love him, some people hate him and stuff. And, and yes, there is, you know, quite a bit of genius or, <laughs> and some people take it building by building and some people yeah. take it building by building <laughs> when it comes to that. But, right. um, the thing that I found really amazing about the space the place is that for somebody who really who didn't grow up in Florida he really did actually kind of understand the Florida climate and so the way that the buildings were collected the way that they were arranged the way that you had these you know overhangs the way that the overhangs were kind of open and then closed and you know and so they you know kind of arranged themselves in some very different things he actually understood the landscape that he was building in I mean, so you know better because I've never been to Taliesin West or Taliesin that he very much seemed to be very in tune with the, um, with his built environment. Because, I mean, I know Florida architects because, you know, I started practicing in Florida. You know, I was raised there. So as I was practicing in Florida, I mean, I know of plenty of Florida architects who don't really fully understand the Florida climate and don't design very well around it. And then there's are obviously plenty that do, but for somebody who, you know, a Midwestern guy who at the end of his career was, you know, out West and dealing with a complete, you know, like with Taliesin West is a completely different climate. I mean, yeah, it's sunny, um, but it's arid and dry and everything else. And, you know, Mm -hmm. um, central Florida is hot and humid and high, you know, sun. And it just like off, you know, awful stuff. I mean, because especially in like central Florida where you're far enough away from the coastline that, you know, you're, you're not getting those beach breezes and things like that. And so 
the air just feels oppressively humid and stagnant for him to be able to create a space that basically the, you know, the, the little bit of air movement that's going through it is almost creates kind of like this kind of like because of the way he cut open like a canopy that connects one building to another. And it's, you know, very much a Florida campus where, you know, it's interconnected buildings with, you know, canopies and things like that. And sure, the canopies are just a hair shorter than they should be. But it was very interested in the way that like the angles of the walls and the openings in the walls and things like that really captured Florida architecture better than a lot of Florida architects could do. Yeah, I've got a whole list of other <laughs> Florida architects who were able to to like kind of capture the essence of Florida in in kind of a, a more modern kind of approach with uh, you know Rudolph and Gene Leedy and all these other people who were part of the architectural movement, the Sarasota School of Architecture. But the Florida Florida Southern College was just you know another one of those like right complexes that he got it right. Yeah, I mean, and there's there's other interesting projects in that region as well that that I've been to on that same trip. I went to um, Paolo Soleri's Cosanti, ah, his home yes. in Scottsdale, and then to our Cosanti out in the out, you know the yep. the community that he started, and just an amazing vision. You know, it's talking about sustainable city of the future and wanting to like take it upon yourself to design that and build at least begin to build uh that is is an incredible vision that not too many people would think of let alone attempt and so i think that's what's so interesting about about visiting that and his vision um definitely have a cosanti bell a a solari bell i guess they're called uh hanging out here in my backyard it's it's just a great experience again to kind of go out there and see the vision and do the tour and and meet the people who live there still on a daily basis and and kind of the journey that they're on and what they're searching for is is kind of next level when it comes to you know living a life a certain way it's it's and and when how architecture can kind of embody that whole that whole way of thinking and that way of living is is interesting it's a lot different than just a building that is a museum that people visit you know maybe once or a building that people may go to work in and then go home from. But when it's all one community, one kind of architectural organism of sorts, uh, that's a really interesting difference in the way that, that that operates versus these other buildings that we're talking about. So there's an interesting counterpoint to like the uh, um, Arcasante concept that Solari did. And I'm going to go back to Wright for a second. But Wright uh, had developed this kind of... Uh, urban suburban concept called Broadacre City. Right. It ended up only being like a subdivision in right. Ple- Mount Pleasant, New York. And so it's like 40, 40 some odd houses that he did with like the, the plots and plans and everything else. And th- not every house in the historic district of Usonia was all done by right, but like the overall concept no, actually, was, and it was built up. I'm by, looking right now at the, at the Wikipedia page, it says he designed three of the 47 homes himself. Yeah, but he designed the actual, like, village. Um, right. And then, you know, all these other architects kind of came in and filled them in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, but I mean, it was, it was kind of interesting to kind of, like, have that. And that that one, and unfortunately, is a, I've never visited, but want to visit 
in the the pages of that one. Um, I also have this uh, interesting cool. like little. I have a road trip of big famous architects uh, on the East Coast that I want to do some of these days. You know that basically take me from at least where I'm at now in you know the DC area and kind of meander up the East Coast and you know pick out all of these different you know places and then you know, slowly but surely, you know, so I can like go all the way up into Massachusetts and go to some of these different places that like all of the masters that we, you know, learned about in architecture school that whether or not they started like their, you know, the Bauhaus um, masters that had left the Bauhaus and came over to the U.S. and, you know, were practicing throughout the, the Northeast and would love to go through and see, you know, the con buildings of the you know, all of the remaining con buildings, all of the, the old Bauhaus masters and all these other ones and all the different, I mean, I'd have to take a year off to like hit all of the, uh, the right buildings, but let's do it. Okay. We work hard enough. Let's do that. I got a lot of PTO saved up. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, speaking of road trips, my wife and I got to do, it's not really a road trip. It's more of a international road trip. Um, cause we didn't drive there, but I, I, started off by talking about Harpa and then that was just the beginning of the Scandinavian trip. And I just wanted to touch on a few of the the buildings that we experienced over there. The Capital A architecture I already talked about the Woodland Cemetery, but some of the other ones are the Alto buildings. And we got to visit Alto's studio and Finlandia Hall. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just, you know, the academic bookstore was, was there, just stumbled into that place. And it's just incredible, incredible work. And getting to, you know, hang out in Helsinki for a week and just try to see as much as we could. Um, it's it's huge place. And his projects are pretty spread out. But there's a lot of them there. And you get to go to the Vitra Museum and, and see. He was one of those guys, kind of like John Lautner and, and other architects, who just designed everything. They designed the furniture, the faucets, the fixtures, everything about the projects, the handrails, the doorknobs. That was the thing I noticed was the Alto pull on the door to the academic bookstore. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I recognize that. Right. And I, I, it, what, it just stumbled on it. And we were walking through Helsinki. And there's just something really interesting about people who can't stop designing like that. And, you know, Wright's falls in that category as well, right? It's like there's these little flourishes in unexpected places that you stumble upon and they're, they capture you. They, it's like the way that the handrail terminates or the way that there's this impression in, you know, this bow relief in the wall or this special decorative steel thing that they do here and there. And And I love that kind of stuff. And I think that's what makes it kind of architecture. And I think we we miss out a lot on that in modern projects, especially the projects that we're doing where they're large and it's hard to kind of, you know, for us, a moment is a space. It's not a detailed little moment like, like the ones I'm talking about. And so that to me was what really stood out about Alto's work. Um, You can see it all over. You can see it in Finlandia hall. You can see it in the tile work. You can see it in his home studio with, the way that the structure is sitting just inside the wall. And it's just like this neat little moment um, and the way the materials transition. Uh, And, and to me that, that was something that I hadn't, you know, I've read about it and I've seen it in books, but it wasn't until I actually got to experience it where 
it makes it feel like a home, or it makes it feel like there was some special amount of attention paid to these different little pieces. Like even in his in his office, in his studio, which is like first he had his office in his home, and then he built a separate one, and then he continued to work out of his home personally. But even his studio is like that with this this giant curving wall with these little scallops underneath it that go out to this courtyard. It's just gorgeous play of light against the geometry of the building. And, and it's little things like that, that really made it really special for me. So definitely on the, on the short list, I think are one of one or two of his projects. I'm sure that that entire trip was filled with like things that could easily hit this list. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Totally. Actually, the one that that is probably under high consideration for me, it's not an alto project. It was a Snowheada project. It's the Oslo Opera House. Mm. And again, kind of an experiential piece of architecture where you get to walk all over that thing. And it's like this kind of iceberg sitting in the bay. It's, It's just amazing piece of architecture. And the way that there are subtle details in the cladding that changes as you kind of walk all over this building um, with these little kind of golf ball like dimples and the striations and the little curbs and the way that the the forms kind of undulate in a very kind of shattered glass like nature and how it just kind of sits in the water and, and interfaces with the city and then to go inside and have it be a completely warm inviting interplay of materials you know a lot of wood but then the way the light comes in it's just a really special, special building. So that one, I think, is is probably towards the top of my list of buildings to talk about at a deeper level. Yeah, and I mean, that one, you know, just only being able to experience it from, you know, magazines and online and stuff like that. The thing that I love about that is it, you know, the Opera House is just the way that you can experience it. I mean, generally, we don't design buildings that you can occupy the roofs. But, you know, being able to like have the roofs kind of engage, you know, all the way down to grade and being able to. It's just the fabric of the exactly. city. It's an extension of the fabric of the city and anybody can walk up there. Right. Yeah. You don't have to buy a ticket to do that. Yeah. So it's just, yeah, it, super I mean, cool. they become a public space that obviously purely intentional in this particular case. But, you know, it's right. just those things that it's like, you know, would we normally, <laughs> I mean, in, in this country, I mean, we would, you know, and I think we talked, would about, you invite people to walk on your roof? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, we, we, <laughs> we tend to, as I think we touched on this, it's, you know, the liability factor. And it's just like, well, what if somebody fell off this roof, you know, now who's going to get sued for kind of thing. And, you know, we don't necessarily, I mean, so we design around like 100% of public safety. So we don't really provide people with these weird opportunities, but could you just imagine if somebody um, you know, if you think about like the Cambridge seven who had designed the, um, national aquarium in downtown Baltimore, and I mm-hmm. can definitely see that that particular building could have easily been, you know, something that could have engaged people and the waterfront like this, where you still have, you know, the actual building usage, but then you also have this purely engaging, you know, thing that, pulls people to the actual water's edge and you know you're engaging the building you're engaging everything else so like right now there are plazas that bring you around the building and connect to you know other little bits and pieces as you're walking through the um the inner harbor of baltimore but there's nothing that like 
is an architectural piece that like fully engages it. I mean, everything basically is just this stationary item that sits within there and is never really fully engaging that. So things like this, people may look at it and they say, Oh, this isn't really my necessarily my architectural cup of tea need to look beyond just that idea of it being an object, but being a place. I agree. I, I think that a lot of times projects like this get judged from afar and it's not until you experience it. I mean, Disney Concert Hall falls well within the realm of this for me. It was one of those things where it's like, that's a one trick pony. It doesn't seem to engage on a deeper level. It's all about just being this object and showing off. And then you go and you experience it and you walk all over it, kind of like the Oslo Opera House. And you you get to experience in between the layers and you get to go up and down the stairs and the you experience the gardens on the upper levels. And it it is very successful in that way when when it captures your imagination and you're walking around with your eyes pointed up all the time uh you know that there's something going on there that you have you've never seen before you've never experienced before and you're glad to have the opportunity to do it and i think that's something that really separates architecture from buildings right is it it gives you the opportunity to experience things in new ways and it really is about creating those experiences much deeper level than just setting your eyes upon something, right? It's not just how it looks. So you had kind of texted me some time ago about the article about the uh, Mike Maltzon, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Michael Maltzon. Maltzon, yeah. okay. You know, the design that they had done for the St. Petersburg Pier competition in right. St. Pete, Florida. And then I was like, ah, you know, too bad it didn't end up that way. You know, it kind of basically ended up the way that the old building was, which is just a pavilion with a causeway that wraps around it. And the interesting thing about some of the solutions, Big had a, um, you know, uh, an entry in the competition. Um, a bunch of like big name architects had, you know, some really interesting concepts for that particular design competition, but none of that, I mean, Originally, uh, his was selected for it, but then ultimately ended up in there's, I, I could go through a whole political conversation about yeah, exactly. what had happened to it because my friend of mine's firm was the local architect for that winning selection. And so then, you know, they said, oh, well, we're going to open it up to local firms and all this other stuff. And so they ended up basically negating the referendum and all these other ones of like the, that particular winning one. But if you think about, like, if in, I think we should put a, a link into into the show notes about this because, and I look more at, like, you know, the Oslo um, Opera House and the way that it engages the water as well as the waterfront and looks back at the city, looks out away from the city. And it's just all these different undulating planes that kind of engage, give you the opportunity to engage the city and the water and everything else in completely different ways than you would normally be if you were just walking on a flat, you know, causeway, you know, around yep. the building. And yep. in the his design actually captured that and engaged it in a way that made it feel more like it should be there than, you know, and it and it, it even had like little tunnels that you would like go underwater you'd be able to engage underwater and, you know, above water and all this other stuff. And it was just this really amazing concept that, you know, unfortunately people started to see the dollar signs, 
but I don't think they really started to see like what the benefit of like a piece of architecture like that would have done for the city that has seen, you know, some good economic times and some bad economic times. And, you know, has been trying to ride through them and recreate itself over and over again. And, you know, things like that would have definitely been a very similar kind of experience as to what like the Oslo um, opera house is capturing where it completely engages the city in a multitude of different ways and is always changing Mm -hmm. depending on where you're at and, you know, what time of year and all of these other things. And you see the successes like this one, and then you see these, oh, it could have been this. (laughs) And then you get that kind of stuff. Because, I mean, you think about it. I mean, I, I was really impressed with the grandeur of the Milwaukee Museum of Art edition. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also actually pretty impressed with the old kind of like brutalist original building that kind of sat up on a perch above the city. It, w- it was one of the more delicate brutalist buildings I've ever seen. Um, Cause it was still very heavy, but it still seemed very light and kind of was just like the way that it engages the ground. But the spaces that are created beyond the gimmicky architecture of like the lifting sails and all of this other stuff. But the unfortunate thing about it was, is that if you go to like the bow side of it or the front side of it, where you really, you know, want to engage the way that the building sees how you see the building kind of interplay with the city. Mm -hmm. It is again, a building that's just perched on a flat piece of causeway that, you know, you just kind of, you walk around the building and it sits completely different than the, I'm just going to say, I am I mean, it sits on Lake Michigan. So I would say that the east side and the west side, the west side being the city side, is far more successful because of the way that it interplays with the landscape, the way that it creates all of these different spaces and that it's just a part of an ensemble of buildings and landscape. Whereas the more unsuccessful side is just the side that is looking towards the city that didn't kind of capture the kind of the activity that you want on Lake the Lake edge, like the Oslo opera house. I don't know. It was a very long winded kind of like <laughs> walking around basically saying that I really dig, you know, at first glance. Yeah. I remember when, you know, I saw the opera house in, the magazine says so like, hmm, you know, kind of like shrug my shoulders a little bit. But then as I started to see it through a different lens and to really understand kind of everything that you had explained from being there, what it actually does. And then you really start to look at that in that, that prism. You're like, ah, yes, this is, mm-hmm. I get it. It makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. And it's one of those places where you, you're getting as much out of it as everybody else. You can look around and see what other people are experiencing. And it's a great place to watch people interact with architecture and learn a little bit about how people interact with architecture, especially a different kind of architecture and kind of the surprise and delight that they're experiencing in this case is what I experienced um, from, from just watching them and, you know, going up and going down and watching kids play on it and, look at themselves in the reflection of the glass and, and while they're walking up this kind of inclination up to the roof is it's really neat to see how people, other people interact with it. Even when you're kind of absorbed in your own experience, there's 
There's a lot going on there. There's a lot to unpack when you go visit a place like that. So I'm going to, I can see the end in sight here. (laughs) I don't know if, I don't know if you can, um, I, I'll talk about one that I've been to more recently that, um, has been a huge impact on my academic experience, my professional experience, and it's the Salk down in La Jolla and recently got to go on a tour of that. Um, and wow, like this one is probably really high on the list of one worth talking about as far as a deep dive. Um, but I don't want to get too deep into it here, but there it's everything that you've ever heard about it and more. It's when, especially when you get to go on a real tour of it and get into the spaces that you, you know, if you, if you just go there and you're not signed up for a tour, you can't even get in the courtyard. You could just walk around the outside. Then the next layer is to get into the courtyard and kind of approach the building, how it was designed to be approached. And then there's actually getting into the spaces and there's so many layers. And I think some of the most interesting things that I'll just kind of throw out there to kind of tease this as a a potential is there's more volume of air in the complex than there is of concrete. And I don't think we think about buildings like that, Hmm. especially when you look at how dense this complex is and how it's a multi-use complex, right? It's, it's a live work arrangement. Uh, and then there's this kind of outdoor space that that everybody shares. And then the other thing was was just Khan's kind of collaboration with Salk and how important Salk was to the design of this place. It wasn't just the lone genius Louis Kahn drawing all the lines. It was, you know, they went through a pretty rigorous process, had this whole thing designed, and then Salk like got on a plane the day that it was going to be submitted or, you know, the deadline or whatever, and was basically like, start over, want to change everything. To create a culture, instead of just creating a monument, he wanted to create a scientific culture. And I think that that is super interesting aspect of it. And then finally, just like the collaboration that Salk had with with Baragon, pulling Baragon in to talk about landscape. He had been really impressed with Baragon's use of landscape and I think Paragon kind of threw him for a loop and, and did something unexpected and said, instead of filling this courtyard with trees, like Khan originally wanted to, kind of creating this alley of trees, he said, make this a facade for the sky. And I thought, like, what a perspective to have. Like, we d- they didn't have Google Earth. They didn't have the ability that we have now to look at every part of the building, not only as architects, but as, as you know, bystanders of people who can just pull up satellite imagery on a whim on their phone to think about it back then like that, I think is just truly amazing. So a little teaser there of potential for talking about the Salk, but um, definitely really high on the list of, of projects. And and I, I would love to see more of his work. You know, I would love to get to the East coast and see more of his work. I would love to go to India and see more of his work. I would, yeah. I would love to get as much Louis Kahn as I could. Have you been to Exeter library? No, no. Mm, we got to. There's a great short film online about it. That's it's mostly CGI, I think, but man, it's it's amazing. It's just a beautiful work of art. It really got me wanting to go there. This is just a uh, complete side note because I've never been there, and I've kind of bashed Calatrava for two different projects a little bit, not excessively. I mean, yeah, the Westfield Mall, whatever. But I really actually want to see, and this is just a bucket list one. I'd love to go to Valencia, Spain and see the city of arts and sciences Mm -hmm. because every image that I see of it is just this 
amazing kind of like interplay between a very, very formal um, landscape intervention and the building interventions. And it's just, um, you know, this, this, like, you know, you see um, how all these buildings and how they're positioned on the reflecting, you know, pool. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they just kind of like, um, you have this negative of the building, you know, from, you know, like the reflection down in the water and you just, it just, they look pretty amazing. I mean, you know, I was kind of given a little bit of grief to him, but you know, I mean, he's still pretty damned amazing, uh, architect, but come on, man, check your welds. <laughs> you wouldn't be talking about the Oculus, would you? Mm, no, no, not at all. <laughs> all right. Got, got anything else on your list? I'm never going to unsee yeah <laughs> those things <laughs> haunting haunting welds yeah um i mean let's finish it up let's 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 wrap it up let's do one more each the barnes museum in philadelphia it, it's a pretty amazing so if if anybody knows the story behind the original barnes museum and you know if you look up the documentary art of this the art of the steel or I think that's it, what it's called. Yeah. Which is about the Barnes collection and how uh, apparently Alfred Barnes wasn't too ready for his passing when, you know, in what happens to all of his art collection and all of that other stuff. So there was a big fight for the collection to be moved into the city of Philadelphia uh, from Marion, um, if I'm remembering the, uh, the movie correctly, from uh, Marion, Pennsylvania, um, which was a suburb of the city. Um, and it was in this, uh, you know, really nice, you know, kind of classical building. And then they, you know, basically moved it in, you know, ultimately it, it was, you know, taken over by, I believe the state or the city and then moved into the city and its new home was, is basically designed on museum row, this big, huge, you know, green, uh, swath that cuts all the way through and kind of terminates at the, um, um, the, the big, uh, Philadelphia art museum at the very end with the, you know, Rocky statue and all that other stuff. But mm-hmm. it's, you know, you and I uh, were there during the AIA convention together. And I mean, the, I mean, we went there before we actually went into the building cause we, right. we were trying to see it and then, Oh, it's close. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we walked around it and were able to kind of like engage the building and the landscape and all of that other stuff. And it, it's a, it's a, such a beautiful building done by uh Todd Williams, Billy Chen. Right. Yep. And it's just, it's just this absolutely beautiful building and tectonically and the way that it engage, you know, it's like this big kind of like heavy box that engages the landscape so delicately in the, the land. I mean, it's not a very big plot of land beyond the actual museum, but the way that they engage the the site it's pretty nice. I mean, I'm I'm kind of hoping to go back through, you know, a few more times throughout my lifetime to just see how the area around it that is developing around there um, and kind of like revitalizing really kind of engages with it and um, how that evolves. Because it's interesting that it's got almost two contexts. It's got, you know, the context that faces out towards the the big kind of, you know, green parkway, then it kind of faces another way more towards the, you know, kind of like residential area. But what's interesting kind of breaks down the scale between the two 
the the side towards the um towards the museums and the in the uh, parkway and, or the park and and everything else are are very large and kind of commanding of facade and then the other one almost kind of like kind of breaks down you know between like the little courtyard and the small spaces and the wall between it and the mm-hmm. everything else it kind of breaks the the scale down so it fits a little bit better with the neighbors that it sits in yeah i mean half that building floats yeah too. oh yeah that's impressive and the section through that building the way that they bring light in oh my god yes is impressive uh so yeah maybe we will save that one let's talk more about that one on another episode yeah yeah we agreed like that one is is total capital a architecture billy chen and todd williams are heroes of mine for sure and i think you know i, I visited down here in la jolla near the sulk is a building or a little complex that they did called the neurosciences institute and it's it's like kind of what i was talking about earlier where there's these little flourishes here and there and you find these bar relief impressions in the concrete and you find what they did with the handrail and you see what they did with holding these panels just off you know these making these travertine panels float like there's just incredible detailing in their projects incredible like i and i think that's what what i love most about the barns was the architecture even more than the art that was on display and how how it is a nice subtle backdrop but it isn't it's a thing of beauty all on its own like it's 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 a really well-balanced project. I mean, it's just, it's an incredible project. So, yeah. So, all right. So last one on my list, I'll finish up with this one, is the project I went to, I guess it was about a year ago, the Seattle Public Library. Mm. And I haven't been to many OMA buildings, um, but man, what an experience. Again, like this is, from the outside, it just kind of looks like this iceberg kind of thing that's, Obviously, it's it's all about the experience on the inside, and they kind of shrink-wrapped that experience with this curtain wall. And the way that you get to experience that and, and what what they did, what they pulled off with the levels and the, the way that you participate in space and the way that you kind of in and out and up and down and around, and there's so much surprise in that building. And I think, you know, we've talked before about about creating those moments and those experiences. I mean, this thing is an experience after the next. It's just like the Guggenheim, I, I go to the top and then work your way down and take as long as you can to get down because there's so many things to experience. And it's a public building. It's for the public. The public uses the heck out of that building. Uh, there's so many, so much program smashed in there that it's a it's a huge service to the public but it's also a great experience and it's not just shelves with books on it right like it's it's very much capital a architecture and i was really surprised because it from the outside it wasn't something that i was excited about seeing and i had heard about people's experience and i've talked i've heard joshua prince rasmus talk about you know the little balcony that he designed to propose to his wife on when he was working at oma and I, there's a lot of neat little things like that, but it's not until you actually get there and you actually experience it that it's it really is something worth seeing and talking about. So that one I think is also on the short list of of potentials to do a deeper dive on. So yeah. um, have you ever been there? No, and in fact, actually, uh, that is uh, one of the cities that I have yet to travel to. And so yeah, this was my first time. It, you know, and it, it's int- I'd really be interested in hearing it because. I got to tell you, um, of all of the like, you know, Starkitects, 
OMA is usually on like on a list of like, eh, take it mm-hmm. or leave it kind of ones, you know, because I guess there are such, such a weird quirkiness to all of their work that it seems so, I don't know. This is the one where, you know, the contextualist in me always kind of sh- shudders when I see their work because it basically says piss on everything else. This is, you know, what we're going to do regardless of the context around it. But from everything that I've ever heard, it is the interior space that really is the the space that, you know, you really need to experience and feel before you kind of like judge. And, you know, like you, I've never been in an OMA building. And so I always like to like, you know, I have this like, you know, initial reaction from just what I see in magazines and stuff like that and always like reserve like final true judgment until I like actually am physically able to go and like see a space because I mean, I don't ever want to like just, I mean, cause trust me, I mean, everybody knows what we all go through when we're, you know, doing some of these things and the mind of, you know, their particular design versus, you know, like my sensibilities of design might be two completely different things. And, that one Galleria, and I'm not even going to bother to try to, you know, pronounce the the name of the thing. But there's, I'm looking at their website right now, uh, Gaio. Anyway, it is a very interesting building, and I'm going to leave mm-hmm. it at that. <laughs> but I'm pretty <laughs> sure that interior-wise, it's pretty damned amazing. Um, but exterior-wise, yeah. you're like, huh? Okay. Well, they they definitely believe in the big idea, and they they do create really interesting experiences and kind of unconventional solutions. And I think like that's exactly what the Seattle Public Library embodies, and that the city was, you know, able to pull it off is incredible. And yeah, it is yeah. it is a from from my standpoint. And again, first time to Seattle, there's lots to talk about as far as Seattle goes and Seattle architecture goes. That one really stood out. And you know, there was the the pop MoMA museum, there was the space needle. There's like all kinds of stuff that you could talk about. There's the Amazon crap that's going on downtown. Um, you know, the spheres and stuff, but, but really that as a, a service to the public is an incredible piece of architecture. It, it is absolutely incredible. So say what you will about it, like an OMA's work at large, but it, it was a, it was a fantastic experience. So again, I think it's probably worth being on the short list. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 like I said, I'd really love to kind of hear about it because impressions are one thing, but experience is is totally, you know, the real, the real issue. Were you at the Monterey Design Conference when their New York director spoke? Yes. That was a great lecture. It was, it was. And that's what really kind of opened my eyes to OMA in a broader sense and just kind of the thinking behind the work. And, and I loved how his, he had a lot of humor in his lecture I think we talked about it on one yeah. of the episodes when we talked about the the Monterey Design Conference. But he, right, they didn't take themselves too seriously. Like they're total architects and they're total black cape wearing architects, right? Yeah. But yeah. they seem to be having a lot of fun. I'm, and I'm sure it's you know there's a lot going on there. That, and um, maybe that's I don't it know too. About. It's a little bit of jealousy. They're having fun. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Anyway, architecture's so, so, not fun. I think Kidding we've everybody. we've gone on long enough. We've given people so many things to to look up and think about. Again, like we'll have all of these links in the show notes for this episode so that you can see all the things that we're talking about. Obviously, an audio podcast about architecture uh, is a little bit of a 
a slippery thing to it's hard to hard to talk about all these things that we should be looking at and experiencing right, but right. um in 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 the pandemic times when we can't go visit architecture let's talk about visiting architecture right what yeah. makes sense to me and you know what's interesting about it is is you know uh, think about these in the context of like what do you miss about physically visiting architecture you know like architecture capital a architecture or whatever from being in the quarantine thing and and what what building would you want to visit as the first building, you know, out of quarantine that you're able to go and visit? And uh, we'll talk a little bit further on which one mine's going to be. Awesome. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to the next episode, recording that with you and talking about it. And I hope everybody else is too. So all the links for this episode are going to be in the show notes for every building or place that we talked about. But we're also going to include a special photo gallery from Cormac's and my travel to these different places for as many as we can and and just the good stuff right we're not going to just be all encompassing but let's throw some images into a gallery for the show notes to this page so something probably we're saying too is if you're listening to this in your podcast player um, we'll have a link in the show notes to this show notes page but also if you subscribe to our mailing list you will get the show notes emailed to you that's all we do with that mailing list if you go to arcaspeakpodcast.com and you fill out the little information on the right-hand side of the page, that's just so that you get the show notes emailed to you each time an episode gets posted. And that link will take you directly, and you can look at the gallery from the photography from our travels in there. Sound good? Don't judge mine. Don't judge mine. (laughs) (laughs) They're informational. They're, They're not all art. All right, that might be all for this episode, but maybe listen to the end just in case. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. See all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what we're doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and don't forget to share it with your friends. We'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at arcaspeakpodcast.com, where you can find our entire catalog of shows. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. This is what you get. This is what you get. This is a schedule. This is a set. It's unpredictable as you forget. If you blow, you can bet. I know, I know, I know. This is what you get. This is a schedule. This is a set. It's unpredictable as you forget. If you blow, you can bet. I know, I know, I know. Oh, you can bet. I know, I know, I know. This is what you get.